Um, let me pray again. Father, we pray that this evening you would help us to understand and appreciate these two gifts that you've given for your church. Lord, we pray that they would help us to cling to the Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, you've probably been in that situation where you ended up in a slightly unfamiliar context, maybe around at someone's house for dinner that you don't know very well, or at some kind of social function or occasion where you're just slightly treading on tiptoes on your best behavior everyone's slightly on edge a bit nervous to do the right thing maybe you remember as a child growing up going to the houses of your friends to sit around a table to have dinner with their families and so you get a glimpse into what they do around their meal times you get a glimpse into their usual practice. A few years ago, I ended up having dinner with my friend's family. And his family had this practice where before each meal, they'd go around and say, every one of them, something they were thankful for in the last 24 hours. And so the food was all plated up. And I was sat there watching around the table to wait to see someone tuck into the food. I was on my best behavior, waiting to follow someone else. And at that point they started going around the table. And you can imagine as a guest, I was sat there thinking, okay, this is a bit different, a, a bit weird for me. Are they going to come to me? Am I going to be asked? I was on tiptoes. I imagine you've been in a similar situation, maybe at a friend's house, maybe at a social occasion, maybe in a different culture. You suddenly become aware that what's happening is a bit odd. It's a bit unfamiliar and you've got to try and work out what to do in the situation. I've had it a number of times abroad where language is another barrier in Albania visiting Will Niven one of our mission partners where I've not been quite sure of what's going on culturally and you have to guess and, and ask people maybe you've been in a similar situation language it just adds another level of complexity well this evening we're going to look at two practices of the church that it's fair to say, culturally, they're a bit odd. It's a bit weird, baptism and communion. And, and we're going to see what the Bible has to say about them and what that means then for us at Town Church. Because we're a little bit like a family that will always have guests around the dinner table. So we want to be clear what we do and why we do it. And we want our guests to feel welcomed and understand. Well, looking then at Acts 2, the context is the, the gathered early church in the very early days. We get a glimpse into the practice of the early church. But when we look at the book of Acts, we have to be quite careful not to make everything that happens the, the normative behaviour for Christians gathered. 
So we shouldn't expect everything that happens in the book of Acts to happen at our church. Because the apostles were given a particular remit under Jesus in the early spread of the gospel. But here in Acts 2, we see how the early church responds to the commands of the Lord Jesus of practice that practices that he's instituted for the church and then how the rest of scripture affirms those practices as normative for the gathered church. So as we look at these two specific things, baptism and communion, we're going to ask a few questions of what's going on here in Acts, Acts chapter 2, what the rest of scripture has to say about it, and what Jesus has commanded. And, and that will help us to shape and see what we ought to do as a church. Now let's set the context then for what's going on here in Acts chapter 2, because we joined halfway through as Peter, he's preaching in the gathering. That, that is, Peter, he's opening scripture and commending Christ. He's using words from the book of Joel, and look at verse 36. Here's his point. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. He wants his hearers to see that Jesus is Lord and Messiah. And their listening are both believers and crowds present. And so what we see is the very beginnings of the early church, the first formulation of the church. So we see what's important to them as they gather. So this evening, as we look at baptism and communion, we're going to ask four simple questions of each. What is it? What is it not? Why do it? Who is it for? What is it? What is it not? Why do it? Who is it for? Firstly, then baptism. What is it? Look at verse 38. Baptism goes intrinsically with repentance. You see, when the people are cut to the heart with the news of the gospel, they ask, what should they do? Verse 37, repent and be baptised. It's a physical sign of a change that has taken place, an, an inward change. It goes with repentance. It's a sign of the change that has happened as they've responded to the word. It's a picture of being raised from death to life. So it's a gift for the church to be practised in the gathering. That's where we see it's the normative place for people to be baptised. In the book of Acts, it's normative and throughout the rest of the New Testament. It's to celebrate new life, which comes, we see, through repentance and faith. That comes in verse 37 as people respond to the good news of the gospel. And so that means for us at Town Church, it is really important to us. We think baptisms should take place for God's glory, in personal obedience, for our good, as the church family are encouraged, and before the watching world, as our friends see 
a public profession of faith. And so if baptisms aren't happening, if baptisms continue not to happen, it must be a question, are people being saved? And of course, we want to see people being saved at town church. Well, what is it not? Baptism, what is it not? Well, maybe you look at these verses and you're a bit confused. Look at verse 38. Peter replied, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Maybe the question there is, well, if I haven't been baptized, does that mean I don't have forgiveness of sins? Does that mean I don't have the gift of the Holy Spirit? Well, the rest of the New Testament is pretty clear and consistent. Baptism itself does not save you. Ephesians 1 says this, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Later in Acts 10, it says, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. You see, both confirm that we are saved by faith in the Lord Jesus alone. When we believe in him, we are marked with the Holy Spirit, a seal. Those things come about, we see in Acts 2, by repentance, a turning around. And it's assumed in verse 38 that baptism will come with it. It just comes as a result of repentance. Well, why do it? Why be baptised? Why is it that it's assumed that it would come as a result? Well, fundamentally, the answer is because the Lord Jesus commands it to the church. Matthew 28, verse 19, Jesus gives his great commission to his followers. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And we see in scripture, that command given by the Lord Jesus is assumed by his apostles. It's what they do. And disciples continue to do it. So why be baptized? Well, it's a sign of obedience in repentance and committing to follow the Lord Jesus. That obedience is for God's glory. We've already seen it's a sign that encourages the church. and. It's also a witness to the watching world, but it is obedience, first and foremost, to the Lord Jesus and for his glory. Well, who's it for? Who is it for? Who should be baptised? Well, notice the repetition in these verses. Peter replied, verse 38, to those who wanted to accept the message, repent and be baptised. They were asking the question, what do we need to do? Verse 41 says, those who accepted his message were baptised. It's repeated, baptism is for people who have put their trust in the Lord Jesus. 
is an outward physical sign of an inward change. It's a, the command of the Lord Jesus. So if you have trusted in Jesus, you'd expect to go to be baptized. So what are the implications for us at Town Church in the way that we practice baptism? Well, firstly, we'll baptize believers who profess faith in the Lord Jesus. It's been said that baptism is a church's act of portraying a believer's union with Christ. And so it means if if you do trust in Jesus and you haven't yet been baptized, we would strongly encourage on the basis of what we've heard and read in the Bible for you to consider being baptized. If you'd like to think about that, if you'd like to be baptized, please speak to one of the elders. We'd love to talk about it. We'd be delighted. Second, what does it mean for us at Town Church? Well, we won't at Town Church baptise those who don't profess faith in Jesus. As we've seen this evening, baptism, it's intrinsically linked with repentance. We don't see a biblical warrant to baptise anyone who isn't professing faith in the Lord Jesus whether child or adult. There's nowhere in the New Testament that explicitly commands the baptism of infants. There's nowhere in the New Testament that explicitly mentions the baptism of infants. Third, what does it mean for us at Town Church? Well, we accept that there will be Bible-believing Christians with different convictions on this. We know of good churches and great people who hold to a different view, and maybe some at Town Church that might hold to a different view on baptism. And that's okay because while it matters and we want to have a conviction conviction on it, it's not a matter of first importance. That means it doesn't save you. But fourth, for us at Town Church, we are a believer's Baptist church by conviction. And so we want to be consistent in all that we do in our conviction from scripture. Here's the reality for us. We're very aware as elders, as we've spoken about this, that looking around the screens this evening, there'll be people listening for whom it's an emotive live issue who were baptized when they were not a believer. And we've seen baptisms an outward sign of an inward change salvation doesn't depend on being baptized receiving the holy spirit doesn't depend on being baptized baptizing a believer as a church or being baptized as a believer is a mark of obedience to jesus and baptism is for those who've professed faith in the lord jesus so if you've not been baptized as a believer for whatever reason we would encourage you to be considering it and for some that might have thrown up questions please come and speak to us about it we'd love to come and speak to the elders face to face because it's a it's an important thing to talk about well maybe you're thinking well okay i've been baptized as a believer so what does this mean for me well we see in matthew 28 the command is to jesus's followers to go and make disciples baptizing them And so 
at Town Church, we'd love to see baptisms in the coming months and years. But by God's grace, they'll come when people profess faith in the Lord Jesus as we go and make disciples by sharing the good news about him. The question for us is, where are you going to share this news in Bicester and beyond? Well, that's baptism. Second then, communion. What is communion? Well, it's a practice that is given to the gathered church of eating bread and drinking wine. Look at verse 42 for a minute. See, the things that they're devoted to is pretty safe to assume that it's using breaking bread to talk about communion, even though verse 46 is probably just talking about meals in the home. Why is it safe to make this assumption? Well, let's see. In the context, it's something that the early church is devoted to. And notice the other things that the early church is devoted to, teaching, fellowship and prayer as they physically gather together. It suggests these are things of fundamental importance. Well, why would it be of fundamental importance to the physical gathering? Well, Jesus himself institutes this very breaking of bread. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul writes this, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, <clears throat> after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. See, the Lord Jesus' command is to do it in remembrance of him, of what he's done, of what he's achieved for his gathered church. And so it's become the assumed practice of the local church, just as we saw with baptism. Well, historically, there's been much confusion about what it actually is, taking communion, eating bread and drinking wine. And why it is that it's a practice that remembers the Lord Jesus that's raised up as of significant importance. So is it helpful to ask, what is it not? Communion, what is it not? Well, it's a symbolic practice. So it's not that the bread and wine are actually Jesus's body and blood. That's a belief called transubstantiation, where people believe that the bread and wine actually take the form of Jesus' body. Here's what the Westminster Confession says. That doctrine which maintains a change of the substance of bread and wine into the substance of Christ's body and blood, commonly called transubstantiation by consecration of a priest or any other way, is repugnant. Not to scripture alone, but even to common sense and reason. Well, for those of us who the word repugnant is not in our common vocabulary, Google definition for repugnant says extremely distasteful, unacceptable. This example, 
cannibalism seems repugnant to us. See, it's not actually Jesus's body and blood that we're asked to consume. And it's not a practice that itself saves us. It doesn't change someone's status before God to eat bread and drink wine. See, in verse 42, the they that it's talking about, it's the same as the there in verse 41. That's those who are following Jesus, those who've accepted the message, those that are one of the number. Jesus' own words as he institutes the practice is, do this in remembrance of me. The point is, eating bread and drinking wine does not make us right before God. It's not something we depend on to have a right standing before God. We can't just waltz into church every other week, take communion and that be our free pass. A right standing before God is offered to us only by the work of the Lord Jesus. And communion is especially given that we might remember that saving work. Well, why do it? Communion, why do it? If it doesn't save us, why is it an important part of what we do at Town Church? Well, we see the same pattern as baptism. The Lord institutes, the Lord Jesus institutes this practice for his followers. The apostles obey. We see the early church continue to do the same. But here's some helpful reasons were given throughout the New Testament for doing it. First, to remember. As we've seen, the Lord Jesus himself says, do it in remembrance of him, that the church would remember, remember the work of the Lord Jesus and what he's achieved for his church. Second, to anticipate. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. See, in remembering what the Lord Jesus has achieved, we can't take that away from what it will do, what he will do in beating death on the cross and rising again. He promises life after death for all those that will trust in him. And so by remembering his death, we anticipate his return knowing that what's been achieved on the cross drastically and radically transforms our experience of life now and when he returns. Third, to be united. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for all of us share that one bread. See, the claim of what he says is that we who are many are one body because we're united in the Lord Jesus and what he has done. So taking communion together is an expression of that unity, a brilliant physical one, as we drink from the same cup and we eat from the same loaf. The Lord's Supper is how Christians come together, commit to each other, change from many to one. 
our fellowship with the Lord Jesus creates fellowship with each other. Now, maybe you might relate taking communion with feeling guilty. Maybe you've experienced communion in a different church tradition because of the danger that we can tie it solely to our own sin. But the whole reason it's given to us is so that we confidently remember. It's a regular physical reminder for a forgetful people because we celebrate that the work is done. We delight that we are in Christ and we rejoice that we're going to be with him. Well, who's it for? Communion, who is it for? Well, just as it says in Acts 2, how it was for those who were being added to the number of believers that day, those who had responded to God's word preached, those who had repented and been baptised, the act of participating in communion is for those who are trusting Christ. Paul warns in 1 Corinthians 11, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. You see, if you don't trust Jesus, this meal is not for you. It's a celebration of our participation in the death and resurrection of Jesus as his body, the church. The only way we could examine ourselves and be fit to do that, the only way, is if we do it based on what Jesus has done. And now the invitation is open to all. We want to bring people in to see what we're doing and to understand. It's great that guests watch and we encourage people to take communion when they are trusting Jesus. Similarly, we bring the children in to watch and to help them understand, to see the importance of what we do. And we leave to families to decide when a child is trusting Jesus and ready to take communion for themselves. But Paul makes it clear, going to take communion before a personal relationship with Jesus is doing in the wrong order. So communion is a gift for the church instituted by the Lord Jesus that we would celebrate and remember his work, express our unity as one church united in the, in the work of the Lord Jesus. So obviously, we'd normally be taking communion following this sermon. It makes sense. But look, we're looking forward to when we'll be back physically in a few weeks, when we can celebrate and remember by practicing this physical gift and recognize our physical unity together. So this evening, as we close, let's just pull together why these two practices, slightly odd culturally, why they're important to us, why we'll do them, and why they should be such a joy to us as we return to gathering physically. In both cases, the, the act of participating in these practices is in response to the good news of the gospel. It's a personal, corporate, and public clinging to the message of the cross. It's personal because it comes about by God opening an individual's eyes to the truth about Jesus by his spirit. It's a personal act of obedience to the Lord Jesus. 
it's corporate because their practice is instituted for the gathering of the local church. They're observed as we do them together. And they're for the good of the whole church as we encourage one another by doing them. And it's public because they take place before the watching world. The gathered church will always have visitors and will always welcome gladly those who don't yet trust in Jesus to see what's going on. But as we close this evening, here's the crucial thing. Both exist to help us cling to the work of the Lord Jesus. Because he has paid for my sin completely. Both exist that we together might cling to the work of the Lord Jesus. They're physical practices that speak volumes to us as a church to say we depend on what Jesus has done. We must cling to him together. So will you? Will you cling to him? Will you encourage one another to cling to him? And as we return to physical gathering, as we have baptisms and communions, we pray in in weeks and months to come. Will they help us in clinging to the Lord Jesus? Because he has paid for us in. Let's sing together. Jesus paid it all. <laughs>